Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hola, bienvenido al Football Social Diamante. A European welcome to a show with a very European feel today. Well, kind of European. (laughs) Pigeon European. Because the big news today is all around a European Super League breaking away from the Premier League. Project Big Picture got knocked back, but Manchester United and Liverpool are back with another plan to rock the Premier League boat. And we're going to be casting an eye over those proposals shortly and discussing the pros and potential cons very soon on the podcast. It could also mean the days of the Champions League are numbered, but for now, it is still very much the top dog of European competition. And Manchester United and Chelsea were both in action last night and picked up two pretty decent results too, the bones of which will be picked over later on today's show. Plus, it's a trip overseas in our Floodlight Focus feature. The club has a very English feel, it's Fulham, but they're under the lights, but it's stateside we're going to go to chat to Russ from Cottage Talk. We'll talk to him about all the latest news from Craven Cottage, plus we'll ask him the all-important question of why, when he could support anyone in the world, did he end up picking Fulham? I'm Jim Salverson, and alongside me to do that, we've got Matt Pitt. Hola, Matt. Hola, guys. <laughs> and Niall McCorn. ¿Qué tal, Niall? <laughs> Muy bien, gracias. ¿Y tú? Yeah, bueno, bueno. Uh, so, <laughs> European Super League. Si, si, si. Cerveza, cerveza. Uh, so, the European Super League. Let's get serious. A uh, long time talked about, but many people, including myself, I have to say, hoped it would never happen. Maybe it took a little step closer yesterday with proposals that have been put forward, spearheaded by Manchester United and Liverpool. They've got £8.6 billion worth of backing for an idea that would see Europe's biggest clubs come together in what looks like it would be a replacement for the Champions League. It would be an 18-team Euro Super League with home and away fixtures and a knockout format for the highest placed teams at the end of the league format. Now, FIFA are reportedly a little bit dismissive about the plans at this stage. UEFA, understandably, they're very much against the idea because they don't want the Champions League taken away from them. But there are a dozen teams across Europe, big clubs, who are currently involved in these negotiations. Details are a little bit sparse at the moment, but essentially it all comes down to there being more Bayern and Barcelona and less Brighton and Burnley. So I'm going to be quite general as we start this off because it's a... It's a project that has divided football fans. And I say divided, there aren't many people, many voices I've heard that are in massive support for this idea. But what do you guys think about this proposed Super League? I'll let you start, Niall. You're never shy of an opinion. <laughs> well, I feel the same way about this as I do about Project Big Picture. I think it's not the best thing in the... I don't think it's in the best interest of the game. It's it's in the best interest of big business which is what the big six football clubs in England are now. They're big businesses. And the problem is, with the way that uh, the economic climate is headed, um, big businesses will always go in search of a higher return, 
it's greed at the top by those people, those capitalists who want to make more money. Now, that's no slight on capitalism. That's just the way that the football pyramid is and that's the structure that it uses. But at the end of the day, they want more money. And I think it's as simple as that. And I don't think you can, you can dress it up and wrap it up and tie ribbons on it and, and spin it anywhere you want. At the end of the day, it is owners of football clubs who want more money in their back pockets. It's as simple as that. And the best way to make more money is to stop playing teams like Burnley and Brighton and start playing teams like Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. And that's the best way to do it because more people will watch the games. Um, when fans are allowed in the stadium, you can charge more premium prices for tickets because it's a premium occasion, two massive teams doing battle. And I think that's what it is. It's basically a rogue Champions League. And do you know what? It's interesting you mentioned in your sort of intro there that FIFA aren't really behind the idea. UEFA definitely aren't behind the idea because some of the reports I've read suggest that FIFA will back this idea of a European Super League, which just goes to show the difference in opinions between FIFA and UEFA and the fact that, you know, you're reading one thing, I'm reading another thing, just goes to show how convoluted this whole mess is because that's what it is. It's a mess. It feels like the Premier League is fracturing at the very seams just purely because of these proposals that have been announced. Obviously, two weeks ago, there was the Project Big Picture, which caused a massive stir. And now we've got this European Super League. Now, I've been saying for, for weeks, maybe even a couple of years on this podcast that... A European Super League is an inevitability. It will happen. The big six clubs in England will feel like they've outgrown the smaller clubs in the Premier League. If you think about the Premier League now and the way how uh, and the teams that are in it, you know, now we've got Leeds back is a different question. But the likes of Sunderland are down in League One. The likes of Nottingham Forest haven't been back up to the Premier League for something like 20 years now. So it's just ridiculous when you look at the kind of teams that are down there in the Championship that could easily be considered Premier League sides. And then you look at some of the clubs that are in the Premier League. You can understand why the big six are thinking, well, we're not making enough money off of these smaller teams. But that's the way the football pyramid works. And that's why we love it, because it's so erratic. We don't know who might come up. We don't know who might go down. Leicester City aren't supposed to win the league. Things happen in football which aren't supposed to happen. And that's what makes the game so exciting. Now, if you want to try and sanitise that, take it away and make sure that Manchester United are always playing the same teams, then that in turn, over time, is going to get sterile anyway. It's going to get boring, isn't it? You don't want to be playing Bayern Munich every other week because at the end of the day, playing Bayern Munich in the Champions League, the reason it's only on an occasional basis is what makes it so exciting. The fact that... Manchester United played PSG last night, and we'll talk about it later on in the show. But the fact that the game was exciting last night was because of what happened 20 months before that when Marcus Rashford knocked them out with a last-minute penalty. The reason that game was exciting was because of the prerequisite, the build-up that had come before in that game just over 18 months ago. You know, if that had happened two weeks ago, it would have been exciting, but it wouldn't have been the same. Because sometimes yeah, it wouldn't have been a special, it, it wouldn't have been a standout no. event because it's an event that would have happened every week. Exactly. So that's the kind of uh, the cultural side of it for me. But as I said before, economically, it's a plan to kind of ensure that the big clubs can get more money, um, more bang for their buck, so to speak. There's no other way to dress it up. The Premier League, in terms of the money it makes, is monstrous. But the difference between the money that the clubs make and the money that's spent is staggering. It's staggering. It's basically like two magnets uh, repelling each other, going further and further apart and leaving this massive hole, this massive gap in the middle uh, of financial doom. And that is what's going to happen to the Premier League. Now, there needs to be some sort of um, addressing of this issue. And whether the European Super League is the way to go, I don't think it is. Sometimes it is the right thing to do to call out your own football club and say, listen, you're making the wrong decisions. And if the fans stamp their feet loud enough, eventually... You'd think that any half-decent owner would, would take notice. But the problem is in the Premier League, a lot of the owners aren't half-decent. And that's a shame. The slight contradiction in FIFA's views on this, I think, are due to FIFA playing their cards very close to their chest at the moment. And they don't want to ruffle any feathers or upset any parties. So until something forms fully and has the proper financial backing and the teams involved, they're unlikely to get fully behind anything in particular. I'm interested in your opinion here, Matt, because as a Manchester City fan, now obviously Manchester City have a very recent history of objecting to the closed shop of the European top table. They felt that the FFP restrictions put upon them and other clubs was a way to prevent teams breaking into that European elite. And they fought that tooth and nail in the courts. 
Here we've got a scenario where there is a proposal that Europe will literally become a closed shop, that these 18 or so teams that are handpicked, that are invited to join the league, will be the European elite and there'll be no way for other teams to break into that little sector. So fundamentally, morally, surely Manchester City and Manchester City fans should object to this despite the fact they are now involved they are now being invited to be part of that european elite oh absolutely i couldn't really say it much better than what what niall just said then um us manchester city we know we don't really have um, a history in like a long illustrious history in european football we've only ever won one um european trophy and that was a cup winners cup um, the only reason why we're being mentioned in this bracket now is because of obviously where we are financially and where we are in the league over the last 10 years or so. But if you're going to talk about clubs deserving to be in this um, this European league in terms of um, how big the are saw as as a club, I mean, there's a, a club that um, Niall mentioned there, Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest, you know, they, they've got two European Cups, haven't they? So why aren't they being considered in it? Because they've got a history in that trophy. Aston Villa have won a European Cup, so why would they not be considered just because they're not doing so well? Um, because right uh, now they're right, not a draw. Not, they yeah, the, they've not got the TV numbers. No, that's it. That's, not, that's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all it comes down to. And that, for me, is not fair. I, that does not sit right with me. You can argue, yeah, it would be exciting to see um, a European Super League. But like now I was saying, it would get boring very, very quickly. The novelty would wear off seeing the same teams play each other week in, week out. I think one thing that we still have as football at the moment is it's excitement even though there's no fans in the stadium we still have like the unpredictability of the whole thing we still have mm. the teams that can surprise the big teams and stuff like that and there'll be no yeah. like sort of surprises now if, if that was to happen like it'd be the same teams playing each other week in week out there'd be no oh that team's done that other team over there and he had absolutely no and right there's no to... relegation in this as well Matt no. there's no relegation so so, so, so where the, where's the drama coming to with that it's it, it, it honestly it Sounds good on paper for a business perspective, but I think after say if, if it ever came in after about two or three years, the novelty would wear off, and they'd be looking for the next um, marketable suggestion um, for these um, so-called big clubs. I just wonder, Jim. I don't know if um, any of you guys are darts fans, but this reminds me of something that happened in the nineties in darts, professional darts. There were two organisations, the BDO and the PDC, and the PDC only became into existence because those darts players in the BDO didn't feel that they were getting enough TV coverage and enough TV revenue, so they threatened a breakaway. The top darts players in the world threatened a breakaway. It was backed by Sky Sports, and here we have the PDC, who have now totally eclipsed the BDO in terms Mm. of financial power, in terms of quality of the darts, and that all started from a dispute over TV and finances. And this feels like a football equivalent of that. That was a huge turning point in the sport of darts, which has completely exploded in the last 30 years from where it was to where it is now. Now, I'm not saying football is going to go on that trajectory and exponentially grow even bigger than it already is. Of course, it's the biggest game and the most popular game in the world. But this feels very similar, that you've got a kind of a group of rebels, a group of rogue clubs that want to break away to make more money. And that's the difference with darts being an individual sport is... These players wanted to make more money for themselves as individuals because there's prize money for winning tournaments. Whereas these clubs, the money doesn't go to the fans. The money goes to the owners and goes into their pockets. And they've already got enough money as it is at this moment in time, particularly when people are struggling with the way the world is right now. It just really just doesn't sit right with me. It's the timing of it. It's so awful. The gap between the the so-called big clubs and the the so-called small clubs at the moment is big enough as it is. And I feel like... If this is to happen, it will make it even bigger and even more far removed from each other. And then what what happens then? Do the the, the clubs start going like more clubs start going bust? Even bigger clubs start going bust. We've already, we're already seeing it now. And where are we going to be in ten years' time if that if that happens? A club's going to start losing money to the point where they are they are going to be worrying about the futures. And it's okay for us to sit at the top and just, you know, bask in our sort of like glory of being thought of as a big club. No, it doesn't sit right with me. I, I've I've been a City fan my whole life and I've seen us go through a lot over the last um, so many years. And we was once thought of as a small club and to some clubs, um, not mention any sort of names, Liverpool, still Man United, we're still, thought, <laughs> yeah, we're still, we still are thought of as a small club, but in on paper we're not now. But it, to me, anyway, no, it just it doesn't feel right, not at all. I do remember vaguely when the Premier League 
launched when there was the change. And this isn't a direct comparison by any means because the Premier League remains an open shop, even though the clubs within it get richer and richer and the big clubs are very unlikely to be relegated, which we wouldn't see in the European Super League. There is a certain opposition amongst football fans to any kind of change. And that's not saying I support the European Super League in any way, but it does feel like there is a change coming. There is an inevitability about this, as you say, Niall, because... Manchester United and Liverpool are being driving forces behind this. And it feels to me a little bit like, I don't know whether you agree with this, Niall, that this is a bargaining chip. We've seen Project Big Picture get put on the table and they've gone, look, we want more control. We want more of a say in how this league is run. That's been knocked back by a majority of clubs. And now they're going, well, if you're not going to let us do what we want here... We'll go and do what we want over here. We'll start our own league. It feels like it could be used as a bargaining chip to maybe give that, I use the term elite sparingly, but that elite level of club more say as to how the Premier League is run. Yeah, I think you've got a really good point there in terms of using it as a bargaining chip because let's not forget about the broadcast revenues that the Premier League makes. That's not just from domestic deals with Sky, BT, Amazon and BBC, but also overseas broadcasters from the likes of China, Indonesia, Malaysia, India. They all have to bid for rights on the Premier League and it's not cheap. It's not cheap. So this broadcast revenue is where the majority of clubs make their money. Now, Talking about the reason that broadcasters want to take on some of these games is because of the bigger clubs. Now, I can sit here and and slag them off and say that it's going to be boring if they go into their own league. I think it will be. But there's no doubting that Manchester United and Liverpool are the two biggest football clubs in this country. I don't think anyone can argue with that. No. And those two clubs are one of the most, they're two of the most supported clubs, best supported clubs in the world. And people want to watch them. And United and Liverpool know that. And the broadcasters know that. And I think you're right, Jim, because if you take those two out of the Premier League, the viewing figures will go down just naturally because they're two of the best supported Mm -hmm. clubs on the planet. So I think that is part of the bargaining chip that you speak of is that Manchester United and Liverpool do have the clout to be able to go, well, if we leave, all the money for everyone else is going to go down. And basically they feel that that they can get more of a chunk of this broadcast revenue than they're getting now if they break away. And I think you're right. It is kind of like they're using their leverage and their power as well-supported clubs and powerful clubs to uh, as a bargaining chip to try and get a better deal for themselves and that's this is all it is Jim it's business it's nothing to do with the sport of football it's nothing to do with the fans or the enjoyment of the game it is purely business and it's so easy to get these two mixed up because football is a game where we're so emotionally invested and it's so culturally important in every country in the world that it's hard to, to kind of differentiate the feelings as a fan and the feelings as a business now, football clubs are businesses, but we've, we all support a team. So we all have those feelings. We've all seen those moments of amazing um, games, you know, like, you know, is, is Matt ever going to forget the Aguero moment? Is anyone ever going to forget the Aguero moment? No, they're not. You know, are you ever going to forget Paolo Di Canio's unbelievable volley in the Premier League 20 years ago? You're never going to forget that moment. i in my house, mate. <laughs> exactly. And those are the moments that fans are all about. It's not about who can get the most money and who can... You know, whose owners are the richest and that it's not about that. And I think that's where Man City fans conduct themselves really well because they know that they're affluent and they know that they've got lots of money. But at the same time, they enjoy the moment. They enjoy the football and, you know, and they trust their owners to do what's in the best interest of the club. Now, this for me Mm. is just about big business. And you talk about people being afraid of change. I think you're absolutely right. I think everyone's afraid of change in every walk of life. And it takes a brave person not to be anxious about changes that might take place. I mean, the most prime example you could use in recent years is VAR. No, the first season of VAR last year was an absolute disaster. I'm still anti-VAR. I still don't think it works. And I, you know, I'm not going to change my tune yeah, after, after two years or 18 months. I'm not going to change my tune because that would be, I think, hypocritical. But people have started to die down with their arguments now about how much they dislike VAR. They've accepted that it's in the game to stay. And I think that's the problem with change is the first year or so, or the first few instances that change takes place, you do get people kind of sit up and go, well, I don't like this. And then eventually they start getting used to it. And I just fear that if this European Super League does happen, that's what's going to happen um, when people get used to it. And I, I just don't think it's the right thing. It's disheartening, to say the least. I want to wrap this up with one final question. Now, normally on Wednesday's podcast, we do the AQA section of the show where we answer your questions. Because there's so much going on, we wanted to talk about the European Super League. We've not got time to do that today. But I want to squeeze in one question because it's relevant from Ravidu, who asked via Twitter, he said... I want to know about the European 
Prem, he says, which I assume he means the European Super League. He says all top six clubs are invited for talks, but only five of those English clubs would be allowed to join. So if this were to happen, who misses out out of the top six? So I've had a go at classifying the top six, and I guess this is an area in itself that is up for debate. But I think we could probably all say Manchester City and United, Spurs, Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea are probably your conventional top six. Who out of that six doesn't get invited to the European Super League? Tottenham. Easy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I was just about, uh, yeah, exactly the same. Tottenham. If, Tottenham. If you had oh, a no. European Super League, Jim. But they, they were in the Champions League final last year. When was the last time they won a trophy? <laughs> if, gonna... if, you had a Euro- yeah. if you had a European Super League of those six clubs, plus Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, Juventus, uh, Napoli, I mean, who would finish bottom of the league? Tottenham. Yeah, Tottenham would. So there we go. There's your answer. There we go. We've settled that one for you. Right, we're going to talk about the European competition that does exist next because Chelsea and Manchester United both in action in the Champions League. We'll do that next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're still talking Europe and we're talking Manchester United versus PSG and Chelsea versus Sevilla. Two of the games that took place last night and two decent results for both of the Premier League teams. We'll start with Manchester United because, I mean, you were commentating on this game, Niall, so you should be much better informed than most of us who were just watching it in passing. But we were talking yesterday about how worried we were in the case of Manchester United's defensive frailties. They had Maguire out, they had Bay out, but actually, defensively, they looked really, really solid last night. Manchester United last night were absolutely brilliant. Their performance was, it was giant. I described it as a giant performance because... When they needed to, they executed a game plan absolutely perfectly. And there's been lots of questions about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his tactical ability. But he was brave and played a back three with wing-backs either side. Alex Tellez on the left on his debut and on the right, Aaron Wambasaka. Wambasaka was unbelievable at kind of getting back and putting in last-ditch challenges and really shackling Neymar and Mbappe. But Axel Twanzebe in a back three, his first game for 10 months. He hasn't played a game in 2020. The last game he played was a League Cup game against Colchester. He was absolutely outstanding. And, you know, one of the fastest, most lightning forwards in world football, Kylian Mbappe, didn't have a sniff because Axel Twanzebe, his positioning was perfect. His composure was excellent. He read the game so well. And Manchester United, to a man, were absolutely brilliant last night. Um, should Axel Twanzebe get more of a chance? Well, the answer is yes. But the problem is, can he stay fit? Now, obviously, United left Maguire at home last night. And uh, he'll obviously want to slot back into the side somewhere, Harry Maguire. He's the United captain. so And he will. Exactly. So it just makes you wonder how Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can go about changing the um, the defence up, particularly as Chelsea is their next Premier League game on Saturday. Uh, there will be a change there for that game because obviously Martial suspended for the Premier League. So it looks like Cavani could make his debut against Chelsea because he didn't play against Paris. He's only had one training session. But defensively, as you say, Jim, Manchester United were absolutely brilliant. Uh, Neymar was finding so many pockets of space just on the outside of the penalty area but the way Fred and McTominay were shielding that back four and just screening everything that came through even when Neymar did have the ball in pockets of space looking to pull strings there was someone there to kind of put a toe in or as soon as someone got skipped past down the line there was another player there to kind of put in a last ditch challenge and David De Gea, let's not forget about him in the goal. He was absolutely outstanding as well with some really important saves. Um, one from Mbappe, one from Neymar. So, yeah, you just wonder whether Manchester United will stick with that back five because it worked really, really well against PSG, who, let's uh, not forget, did have their injuries. So it wasn't a full-strength PSG team. But if you're talking mm. about the front three, Di Maria, Neymar, Mbappe, I mean, they weren't injured and they were, they were some of the three best players in Europe in terms of an, an attacking perspective. So, yeah, full credit to Manchester United. Unbelievable performance and fully deserved of the win. Not a bad front three to keep quiet at all, but Manchester United had their own threats going forward. Marcus Rashford, absolutely outstanding again last night. Matt, it feels like a while since we've seen him playing at his optimum level, but he could start to be getting back to his best I guess he likes playing in Paris maybe that's it maybe we need to 
loan him out to a <laughs> Parisian team because he seems to get the best out of his game when he's out there. I mean, there's like there's sometimes for me unfair criticism of Marcus Rashford when you when you look at since he started playing for United when he started under Van Gaal. He's turned up in some really, really big games and he seems to have that big game mentality about himself. There's been times where he's obviously gone off the boil and he's sort of lost his form, but one thing you can always have with Marcus Rashford is he always gives 110%. He's obviously a United player through and through, United fan through and through. And when you need that player to step up to the plate in a massive game, for me, anyway, as, as watching from a neutral perspective, watching Manchester United, it's always going to be for me Marcus Rashford. It's always going to be Marcus Rashford, the one that's going to have that little bit of that little bit of quality. I mean, it's not mm. going to be Pogba. Pogba for me, he's only had forty-five minutes of um, a bit a big game sort of in his life for Man United. That was against us when he stopped us winning. To be fair, I thought Pogba was all right last night. I thought he, when he came on, he injected a little bit of pace and a little bit of. Impetus into mm. the midfield, yeah. What, yeah. which I don't say I don't say easily about Pogba because I like a little bit of Pogba bashing, but he did all right. No, he, he did do okay. He did do okay. But I'm I'm talking about someone who's going to come on and like change a game. Someone who's going to come on and basically just switch things around. Say if it's backs against the wall, mm. I don't I don't really think Pogba's that player that's going to drag your team out of a situation. Mark, Marcus Rashford for me, if your team's up against it, he will be that player that, that drags everyone forward. I, mean, I think he's going to be a future Manchester United captain. I don't think Maguire will have that long. I don't think Maguire will have that that long. I think he will mm. He will have the armband one day. And I think um, his goal last night was absolutely brilliant. It was it was fantastic. And like you said, he was he was brilliant in Paris as well last season. He had that penalty in the, uh, the last minute that obviously took nerves of steel to take. Mm. And... Like you were saying earlier on, it was a great game that last season, and I think that added to the um, the spectacle last night. Obviously, no fans, but it was still a, it was still a good game on the pitch. And I thought um, United to a man last night, yeah, they, they did deserve the victory. And um, Rashford definitely shone for me. Yeah, Rashford did actually have the captain's armband for the last five or six minutes when Bruno yeah, Fernandez got yeah. taken off. So I think you're right, Matt. I think we will see him um, wear the captain's armband in the near future. Actually, Jim, it's interesting you mentioned Rashford was outstanding. I thought he was the worst United player on the pitch. And that doesn't mean he had a bad game, by the way, because every United player was absolutely fantastic. So that doesn't mean Rashford was poor. But some of the chances he had early on in the first half where he had, you know, the world of the of the Parc de Prance to run into. He had, you know, the freedom of the Paris penalty area and made a couple of wrong decisions. Um, but that's what Matt's getting at, is the fact that even though he made a couple of poor decisions in the first half, you still feel that when he gets the ball, he's capable yeah. of doing something special. And that's exactly what he did. And, and, you know, Marcus Rashford delivering in Paris. He seems to like playing there, as you say. Everyone likes a player that has that little bit of magic, the ability to just turn a game on his head. And it feels like he does have that. There was an amazing stat I heard last night involving Manchester United and the amount of penalties they've had. Because we all joke that Manchester United get a lot of penalties. They've now had 27 in all competitions since the start of last season, which is more than any other team right across Europe. Is this just one of those weird stats or is there something we can learn from this in any way, Matt? I think it's just one of them weird stats. I, I can't I can't see there being anything about the whole thing. Maybe that's just a game plan that Ollie has. Maybe um, he tells his players, does any sign of contact go down? Because we all know nowadays, any sign of contact to you know, with VAR especially, the referee's going to have a chance to, to give make a decision. Sometimes it'll go against you, sometimes it won't. I, th- I think it's just maybe something that Ollie might implement into his into his into his players there. I, I don't I don't want to start getting my tinfoil hat out and start saying that um, United are getting all the decisions, <laughs> United are getting all the penalties, even though they had the most penalties from the Premier League team last season. Um, no, I, I I just think I just think it's one of them one of them weird stats. What do you think, though? It's just a quirk of the game. I think what it is worth mentioning is um, the Bruno Fernandez penalty stats from last night, Jim. Um, obviously, he had a penalty saved against Newcastle by Carl Darlow, which was the first time he had a penalty save since 2016. It was his first miss in 20 penalties, and he had scored his previous 10 in a row for Manchester United. Had one save last night for by Kaylor Navas, but obviously the retake had to be uh, had to be taken because Navas jumped off his line. Now he was a couple of inches off his line, Kaylor Navas, but I do think we're going to see loads more of that. By the way, goalkeepers jumping off their lines to save penalties, and I think the advantage is 
already against the goalkeeper from a penalty. It's already in the striker's favour. So, you know, unless they're jumping six foot off their line, which would take a superhuman to do that. Um, I'm not sure about this rule of keepers jumping off their line, really. How much of an advantage do you get? I guess you've got to have a lot. You've got to. You've got to have a line somewhere, haven't you? And it's either you can come off your line, but then if you go, well, you can come up to a foot off your line, then you have an issue measuring that distance. So it's kind of like, it's a bit like offside. It needs to be a black and white thing, but I agree. I don't know how much advantage the keeper is getting in that scenario. Before we move on to Chelsea, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seems to be a manager at the moment who just sways from crisis to hero status I think after last night he's probably in the hero status but how long can this result keep the wolf from Ole's door there's already been rumours about Ed Woodward potentially lining up replacements does he feel like he's safe for the time being yeah I think he's fine I don't think there's any problems with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I think the 6-1 defeat will obviously pile the pressure on but this is Manchester United Football Club you're talking about here and if you're going to lose a game you don't lose it 6-1 you just don't do that and you know (laughs) Unless it's City, well, the only two teams to do that, Spurs and City. Of course it does. And Manchester United, the the spotlight is intensified massively. So I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is comfortable in his job at the moment. I think it's no secret that Ed Woodward is a big fan of Maurizio Pochettino. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will know that. He will know that. And he will know... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't want to do badly. He's a passionate guy. I mean, he might not display that with his interviews. But there's a reason he used to be called the baby-faced assassin. I think behind closed doors... He pulls a lot tighter rank than people give him credit for. Now, tactically, mm-hmm. people have questioned him and his decision-making. Considering the injuries United have la- had last night, it was a ballsy move to go three at the back and play two wing-backs, but it worked absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. Now, if David De Gea didn't make a couple of saves in the first half, United could have been 2-0 down, it could have been a different game. But that's the way the game is. Jose Mourinho, who's one of the best managers we've seen in football in the last 25 years, as, as mentioned um, in recent weeks, after Spurs conceded an equaliser late on the other day, he just said, that's football. That's the way it is. He said, you know, against West Ham, he said, I'd love to give um, West Ham all the credit because, you know, they were the ones that kind of came back into the game and you can pinpoint Tottenham mistakes. But I think sometimes that's just the way the game goes. Now, the trick is to being a good manager is to consistently prove that you've got a style and consistently prove that you can get results. Now, I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer personally does that enough. But he is still very, very early in his managerial career. And he's at one of the biggest clubs in the world. So I think you have to give him credit where credit's due for last night's performance. I do think you're right. It does feel like he's kind of flip-flopping between being an unmitigated disaster and being a resounding success. Um, It's very, very hot and cold. Now, Chelsea at the weekend will be a tough test because they've beaten Newcastle comfortably in the Premier League before this. They've beaten PSG now. And now they've got Chelsea. Now, the last time they played a top six side was Spurs and they got beaten convincingly 6-1. So I think this would be a, a different test. And utilising the squad, I think, is something Solskjaer's beginning to do now. We saw the likes of uh, of Harry Maguire left at home, although it's supposedly due to injury. Probably we'll see him back in the side for the Chelsea game. But he used his squad really well. I mean, it's a brave move to play someone like Twan Zebe, who hasn't played a game in 2020, hasn't played since December last mm. year. And then he comes in and performs brilliantly. Now, if Twan Zebe had had a disaster, people would have said, oh, that's naive management mm. from Solskjaer playing him at the back when he's not played for so long. But, you know, as a manager, you've got to show faith in your players. You can only work with the squad that you've got. At this moment in time, Solskjaer has this group of players. And I think it's a real kind of a task to try and squeeze some of these players into the right positions. Now, you mentioned Pogba. I think playing on the edge of the box um, a little bit further forward than a central midfield role is Pogba's best position. Um, But then again, you've got to fit him, Bruno Fernandes and Donny van der Beek in the same team. And that's going to be difficult for any manager, let alone someone as inexperienced as Solskjaer. So there are issues at Manchester United that need to be addressed, but I don't think he's at any risk of losing his job. And if it is, I think it would be an appointment that's made at the end of a season or during a break in a season. I don't think that I don't think he's going to be sacked before Christmas. Let's just say that. Let's talk about the other game in Europe last night and it was not nearly as eventful as the Manchester United game. Little chances for both Chase, Chelsea and Sevilla. The one player that stood out for me was Mendy in goal who had an absolutely great game for Chelsea. The concern was he still was going to be injured and that Kepa or one of the other keepers on Chelsea's books would have to play. But he was fit and you can kind of see why a lot of Chelsea fans, Matt, think he could be the missing part of their puzzle. Yeah, he looks a lot more assured. He looks a lot more confident. 
And when you are that as a keeper, you breed confidence into your back four and that shown last night for Chelsea. The centre halves looked a lot more comfortable. Sevilla they only had they only had two shots on target, but as a goalkeeper you can only save what comes at you and he, he did his job brilliantly last night, Mender. Kepper I've I've I felt a little bit sorry for him over his Chelsea career. I think sometimes he's obviously he's let, his attitude has let himself down, he's made a few high profile mistakes. I don't think he's a bad goalkeeper. I just think he's going through a bad time at the moment. And don't, let's not forget, he's still young. He's still a young goalkeeper. And for me, goalkeepers get better with age and with experience. And I think mm. he still he still has something there. He's, I don't think it's at Chelsea anymore, though, because when, when your manager goes out and buys um, another, say, high-profile name goalkeeper, I think that's um, a nail in the coffin for your career there. And obviously, Czech's come in now and been named in the squad there. <laughs> and, and he was um, I don't know where that's come from I have no idea where that's come from I thought he'd retired to be honest I, I had no idea I had no idea he was still playing the scene on Sky Sports News what, what kind of message what kind of message I mean he has retired he retired from football last year he's a technical advisor at Chelsea now I mean in, in terms of goalkeepers he's not that old he's 38 I think which no. isn't that old no, no, he's no, younger no. than Caballero yeah. Caballero's yeah. still playing and Czech's been retired for 18 months he's but younger what kind of message what kind of message does that say to Caballero and Kepper, when you're going, oh, we're so short of options. We've got to get the coach off the bench. You're, <laughs> you're not good enough. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's what it says. Um, no, checks the. He's now the technical director or something like that, isn't he? He's, he's certainly involved upstairs at Chelsea. Um, I don't think he's really put the gloves on for a while. So this is a surprise. It reminds me of when uh, you see it down in the Football League where managers always name themselves on the bench. You know, 56-year-old yeah. Gareth Ainsworth puts himself amongst the Wickham subs <laughs> because he might get a game every now and again due to an injury crisis. Um, Chelsea have said it's down to the COVID-19 situation. Right, right, they say yeah. that they don't know what the situation's going to be like in terms of players dropping like flies with COVID-19 positive tests and having to self-isolate for weeks at a time. So check as goalkeepers were low risk because they're always wearing gloves, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> sort of extra protection. Well, Petr Cech used to wear that head guard, but never a mask. So uh, maybe we'll see Petr Cech pulling out the mask before too long. But yeah, I think it's a good point because, you know, obviously there's only three goalkeepers in a squad and defenders, you've got six or seven um, you've got more versatile. It's more they're more versatile players, aren't they? Outfield players. They can they can mm. kind of adapt to other positions, especially if there's an injury crisis. You know, you wouldn't be expecting Petr Cech to go and do a job up front no. for for 25 <laughs> minutes. You know, when uh, when Tammy Abraham gets injured or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's the thinking behind it for Chelsea. But you talk about the message to Kepper. I don't think this will be a bad thing because I'd rather learn off of Petr Cech if he does do some training than I would Willy Caballero. That's no offence to Willy Caballero, but Petr Cech's the record clean sheet keeper in the Premier League mm -hmm. history. So, you know, I mean, he's a great guy to learn off and I think Matt's right. I don't think Kepper's a bad goalkeeper. He's been poor. Let's not deny it. He's been poor recently and there's no wonder that he's in the firing line at Chelsea and they want to make a change. Mondi looks like a good addition. Um, but yeah, I do think Kepa has a future in the game, just like Matt says. I don't think it's at Chelsea, but it'd be funny if Petr Cech plays, wouldn't it, wouldn't it again, after he's <laughs> retired. That would be amazing. I thought he'd started dr drumming, because I've seen a few YouTube videos. I thought he was going to join a band, me, and become a drummer <laughs> yeah. in a band. He is he is a decent drummer, actually. Yeah. There's um, in Interestingly, last night for me, we were going on about how good Chelsea are going forward and how potentially fragile they are at the back, but they seem to do what they've been doing well badly last night and doing what they've been doing badly well. They had just six shots on target, which is the... Sorry, six shots on goal, which is the fewest they've had in a Champions League game since February 2015. But it looked like, and this will be reassuring for Chelsea fans, those defensive signings of Mendy... I mean, Chilwell has looked good since he's played for Chelsea, but Silva as well all seem to be bedding in slightly. Well... Especially after the weekend, you know, when they conceded three to Southampton, I think what Frank Lampard would have been hoping for last night was a win and a clean sheet. Obviously, they didn't get the win, but the clean sheet would have been important to Lampard last night and to see his defensive players playing with confidence. I still think they looked a little bit sort of vulnerable from uh, wide positions because Sevilla got in quite a few crosses last night, but like you were saying, they looked comfortable because the, 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 uh, the centre-half, they dealt with them. Chilwell looks decent. He's he's really consistent for me, Ben Chilwell. I think we missed a trick going trying to get him because let's have, um, everybody knows City are in dire need of a left back, a decent, consistent left back. Um, Lamp Lampard's got a decent squad there. I think 
if they get a good run of results together in the Premier League, they can um, challenge for that top three. I had them. I had them at the start of the season as being part of the Liverpool, City, Chelsea top three going for the title. I think what they've got there now, they've got they've got a squad that's got a lot of good young talent, and obviously Lampard's a young manager with a lot of experience in big games. I think. Going forward now, Chelsea will be a team that are going to be wanting to go for the bigger trophies, going for the Champions Leagues because they've they've spent they've spent quite a bit of money. They've spent quite a bit of money, but they've they've developed a squad there that aren't just going for experience. They're going for youth and they're mm. going for the the longevity. It'll be interesting to see how they shape up for the rest of the season and really interesting to see how both teams off the back of those results perform this weekend because they both meet on Sunday at Old Trafford and we'll have a full match preview for that on Saturday morning's Football Social Daily. As always, the best way to get the latest podcast is to hit subscribe and then you get the new podcast delivered into your podcasting inbox as soon as they are ready. Right, we're going to turn our attention to another London team next. We're going to talk Fulham because it's them under the floodlight focus and we'll chat to Russ from Cottage Talk next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. the latest Premier League news for your team just ask Open Sport Social Welcome back to Football Social Daily we are talking Fulham next because our floodlight focus is all about the cottages and I'm going to speak to Russ from Cottage Talk which is a US internet radio show hi Russ how you doing yeah I'm good how about yourself I'm doing great whereabouts in the States are you I'm right outside of Boston Massachusetts I'm always interested when we talk to people in the States because obviously there's you kind of understand how you get these little pockets of Manchester United fans and Liverpool fans and without, with no, no disrespect to Fulham, the successful sure. clubs. So how does someone in Boston end up supporting Fulham? Well, as I've told this story several times, it started with Quint Dempsey. My local club is the New England Revolution, and, which is actually right down the street from me, maybe 10 minutes away. And uh, Quint decided to go to the New England Revolution, went from the New England Revolution to... Fulham, and I was trying to find a club that fit me. I, I tried Manchester United, I tried Chelsea, and none of them took. And uh, when he went to Fulham, it took. And part of it had to do with the fact that uh, his second season dealt with uh, a real relegation battle, and I threw myself into it, and uh, then I became a full-fledged supporter. Fair play. Obviously, there's been a couple of decent US players based in Fulham as well. But speaking of relegation battles how much hope did you have going into this season and how much of that initial hope do you now have left one month into the season it's interesting that you put it that way because i knew that form were up against it because of uh time constraints when you win a playoff final you are behind the eight ball regardless of all the planning that you do so i knew it was going to be an uphill struggle and i knew that they needed to upgrade similar to how they needed to upgrade two seasons ago but i knew that based on uh, what I was hearing from the club, that they were going to do it differently, that they weren't just going to spend money like they did two seasons ago. So it was going to be a little bit different, and it has been different. And the one thing that I will say is that uh, two seasons ago, I was extremely upbeat and really thought that Fulham could potentially be a top 10 team. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> because um, that it was something that I think you do when you just look at the talent that comes in, you just assume that it can all fit, it can all work. And there are so many factors going into what makes a, a team successful. And this season, when I see the players that are brought in and uh, the pieces to fit the holes, it seems a lot more sensible. And business-wise, you have a lot of loans and a lot of loans to buy. So it, it really is more of a, I guess you could say a fiscal responsibility this time but I do see several of the players being able to help them not that they couldn't two seasons ago but these players seem to fit I think a hell of a lot more the way Scott Parker wants to play so even a month in with one point I'm very confident they're going to stay up do you give that structured approach to recruitment and building the squad do you give the credit to Scott Parker or do you think that's happening above him at board level it's an interesting topic amongst Fulham supporters because uh, Tony Khan gets a lot of criticism and uh, 
you know, and again, I understand that because he is ultimately the person making the decisions. But as we've learned, Scott does have a say, and they do discuss not just with him. It involves a decision deals with stats, it deals with scouting, and it deals with Scott Parker all being part of the decision. But ultimately, Tony makes the decision of the players' comings and goings. Mm -hmm. And does Scott have a say? Yes. And I can just tell a little bit of a difference of the players coming in, suiting the way he wants to play. But ultimately, it it does go back to Tony Khan. How do you feel about Scott Parker at the moment in terms of, I mean, he seems to be doing a solid, if not spectacular job at Fulham. But your club do have this reputation of pulling the trigger when things aren't going to plan. They like a chop and change of a manager. If it starts to go south this season, do you want to see the club keep faith with the manager and maybe focus on rebuilding for the following season, coming back to the Premier League? Or do you roll the dice and and attempt to stay up if it doesn't work? I'm all about Scott Parker staying the entire season. I've stated that on my show and Part of the reason has to do with, like you said, it, they've tried this twice. The chopping and changing doesn't work. At least it hasn't worked for Fulham. So I would take the risk of going down with Scott Parker and rebuilding and basically giving a manager a chance to learn his craft, which he's doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, listen, he wasn't my choice. I'm, I'm going to be open on that. He certainly was not my choice. But he's the full manager, and and I have to say he's won me over because I can see him learning on the fly and basically really coming into his own as a manager. It's going to take time because he's a new manager, just like Frank Lampard. Same thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about Scott Parker staying as a full manager. And I'm here to tell you, the death knell for Fulham two seasons ago was sacking Slavisa Jokanovic. The minute they did that, Fulham were down. Nothing against Claudio Ranieri, but they went from one extreme to another, mm. and it just didn't work. It absolutely didn't work. I, I had a feeling that if they made this change, this drastic change, it wasn't going to work, and I got proven right. So for me, I wanted them to stick with Slavisa, so I'm all about sticking with Scott Parker. And what's great about watching him right now is his development, being able to make halftime changes, changing his lineup, changing when things aren't working. Not every manager does that. He's starting to do that. So I'm actually encouraged by the progression of Scott Parker. Is that what you've seen in terms of you say you you think Fulham are going to stay up? Is that yeah, I do. one of the glimpses you've seen that there is this progression and you obviously got your first point against Sheffield United, a much better yeah. performance as well. Yes. I'm glad that you mentioned the last match and I can go to the other match as well. We have seen a progression and part of it has to do with Scott Parker but the other has to do with the additions that have been brought into the club mm. so I'm going to give you three names of players that I have seen make a drastic change in just two matches Adam Olwickman, Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Tosin Adarabaya and unfortunately Joachim Anderson got hurt but I have heard great things about him and hopefully he'll come back sooner than later but the additions, along with the moves from Parker, you could see the problems that we had when we opened up against Arsenal is that we had nothing going forward. Well, now you have someone that can unlock a defense like Adam Olukman. On the defense, we really had problems with um, center backs. Now, again, it's just one match, but I'm very encouraged by what I saw from Tosin. On top, you know, so again, Fulham's problems have have been twofold. It's not just defense. Everyone just focuses on the defense. It's also been scoring goals. And when you look at Lookman, you look at the addition of Loftus-Cheek, these additions really give me hope. The three players you mentioned, obviously two of them on loan from Chelsea, and they've kind of proved themselves at Chelsea. So we know what they've got in their locker, but they've been squeezed out by maybe bigger name signings to play their football right. elsewhere. Lookman's a really interesting player for me because I think we haven't really seen him reach his full potential yet. We saw flashes of it maybe three seasons ago when he made his debut for Everton in the Premier League. Do you think now he's at Fulham could be his chance to unlock that full potential? Absolutely. Listen, if you watched the last match and you could see the goal that he scored, again, if you just want to focus on the goal, you could really see that potential. But I've seen it ever since... He came on the pitch with a foam shirt on. Again, he looks dangerous. If you go back and you watch the goal that he scored, that just gives you 
a teaser to what I think you're going to see. I, I've seen it in all three matches with Fulham. The potential is there. And I'm not saying that Scott Parker is going to build everything around him, but he's definitely a huge piece of the puzzle. He can unlock the defense, and they needed that big time. Because, again, you have a goal scorer with Mitrovic, but you have no one else there really helping him. Well, now you have this force that can unlock a defense without him all looking. And like I also mentioned, Ruben off his cheek. But I think you're going to see the potential really turn into something special without him all looking. Perfect situation for himself and for Fulham. It's a win-win. Next up, you've got Crystal Palace, which isn't just a derby game. It's also... It's one of those games that you just need to target. If Fulham yes. are going to stay in the Premier League, you need three points. So you, are you fancying it? I am, but I'm, I'm not going to fall in the trap that I, I fell into two seasons ago because I, I thought that the opener against Crystal Palace, that was a victory. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. They need to get all three points. What concerns me about this is, again, going back to knowing Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson will have a plan to be foam. He'll know how to be foam. So that concerns me. But Fulham have the players right now, I believe, to beat a team like Crystal Palace. They need to win. They need to learn from their mistakes two seasons ago when, again, they were in the game, they were controlling the game, but it just took a couple moments of magic to unlock Fulham. And they, again, have to learn that if they make a mistake, they will get punished. And that is, again, classic Roy Hodgson for me. Solid team. He has some talent there, but they don't make the mistakes. They wait for you to make the mistakes, and Fulham cannot make mistakes against Crystal Palace. If they play a a pretty clean game, they can get all three points, and they really need all three points. Top man, Russell, good luck for the weekend. If people want to find more from you and Cottage Talk, where can they find you? Sure, you can go on Twitter on my own personal Twitter account, Russ underscore Goldman, and also on the Twitter account for Cottage Talk. If you're on Facebook, you can just search for the Facebook page of Cottage Talk, and we do live videos on my Twitter account and also on the Cottage Talk Facebook page. Nice one, Russ, and that is it for today's podcast. Thank you very much, Niall. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much, Matt. Nice one, guys. And don't forget, all the latest news and reports and details on your team can be found on our website, sports-social.co.uk, including how you can find full reports and the latest news on your team via your smart speakers. Go check it out, sports-social.co.uk, and we'll see you next time. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at the Sports Social.